to the Inception Family Wealth Hour. In this podcast, we examine in-depth what-if questions pertaining to estate planning and family business succession matters with top advisors, consultants, and thought leaders. This week's question is, what if I have an elderly family member? There's no finer person to discuss this pressing matter than Laura Tamblin Watts. Laura is the CEO of CanAge. CanAge is Canada's National Seniors Advocacy Organization, where her work focuses on aging, inclusion, consumer rights, and social justice. Next week, we'll have a two-part podcast featuring renowned family enterprise advisor and author Steve Legler. So welcome to the Inception Family Wealth Hour, and let's get started with a great interview with Laura Tamblin-Watts. Welcome uh, to the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. I'm very excited to have with us today Laura Tamblin Watts. Laura is the CEO of CanAge, Canada's national seniors advocacy organization, where her work focuses on aging, inclusion, consumer rights, and social justice. Uh, Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's our pleasure. Uh, Laura, you've, you've had a, a varied and, and fascinating career. Um, I, I had the pleasure of getting to know you uh, through an event we both attended in Southern Ontario here, and then having you come to speak to our local uh, Society of Trust and State Practitioners chapter, and your presentations w- were amazing. And the common theme through these presentations is your work with vulnerable and older Canadians. What drew you into that space? What, what compels your passion to, to work for and advocate on behalf of, in particular, Canadian seniors? Some years back, Marie Beaulieu, who has a chair in elder mistreatment at the University of Sherbrooke, did a national research project of people who have chosen to be in the area of aging. And she did a really interesting set of videos. And the common thread overwhelmingly was some type of strong relationship with an older person when they were younger, very often a grandparent. And in my case, it was just that. So my grandfather on my mother's side uh, Deke Goddard was, in my view, you know, somebody who walked on water. And I, I was so uh, pleased to be able to spend the whole summers with my families at the cottage intergenerationally. And so as a result, I don't think I really grew up with those siloed barriers that so often we have amongst generations. To me, having kind of relationships with grandparents was really normal. And then, you know, I spent my life kind of working for social justice causes in the women's movement, the children's movement, and it all kind of came together for me in my early years as a lawyer. And I was in private practice for a couple of years, but I always knew that the work I wanted to do was sort of change social justice. And I was sitting at my desk in private practice and I was working with, um, I'll call the file Mrs. Jones. And Mrs. Jones was certainly the victim of elder abuse from her adult son. And she had the power and the financial means and the, the wherewithal to push back against her adult son. And it hired our small firm, which was a sort of a boutique practice, to to try to reverse what was happening and and i remember being really captivated by this particular case 
and we were able to negotiate and were able to put some provisions in place and so on for Mrs. Jones. And I remember that, you know, aha moment of clarity where I realized what I wanted to do was not only help the one Mrs. Jones, but help all of the Mr. and Mrs. Joneses out there. And mostly people weren't going to have the financial ability or social wherewithal to be able to push back. And I wanted to be part of helping that. And so that was a long time, maybe two decades ago. And, and ever since then, my whole career has been focused on seniors' rights and advocacy. So you identified a gap there between what this client at the time needed in your capacity as a lawyer and what they, uh, what, what you were able to provide. Was that a knowledge gap? Was it a service gap? Uh, uh, and, and how have you moved into that? How have you used that 20 years to, to or, or maybe how would we identify that gap? Because I, I don't think that gap's gone away. <laughs> No, it hasn't. What has changed in 20 years is people's awareness of the problem. So about, you know, if I was sitting down 20 years ago and I was at a dinner party and someone said, what do you do? And I said, I work in the area of law and aging. And they'd say, what is that? And I would say, well, it has a lot to do with, you know, pensions and retirement, it has to do with decision making, like powers of attorney. It has a lot to do with, you know, ageism. People started squinting when they were talking about, hmm. And then you, know, you get to, you know, a lot of the issues around elder abuse and neglect. And then they just got so confused. And people would say, well, are you kidding me? Does that happen? Is that a real thing? About 10 years ago, I could be at that same dinner party. The first piece is people were nodding more and they wanted to engage in conversations about some substitute decision-making or retirement planning and so on. Uh, and they'd heard of ageism and they maybe had heard a little bit about elder abuse and neglect. Now I'm at the dinner party and people are spontaneously telling me about those things and what's happening in their families. And so I think what's really happened is been a destigmatizing of the issues. And as our population is aging, people are really understanding that it's a growing gap and that the issues are also exponentially expanding. And so, you know, there's no, easy story in this area. Every family is complex and all families really need help and support to get through. And yet many of them still feel somewhat stigmatized as having something like less than what they imagine a perfect family is. But, but that's the norm, whether it's challenges about intergenerational transfers of wealth or whether it's the adult son who is the unsuccessful son in the basement or whether it's a adult parent who is still raising their 55 year old developmentally delayed child who they never wanted to put into an institution in the 70s and, and so on but now that's the issue uh, but what are we going to do to take care of that person and support their well-being as they're aging 55 plus and, and really, how do we wrap all of this stuff up together with this idea of you know, vulnerability because of ageism and risk of elder abuse and overwhelmingly concerns about mental capacity? So, you know, it's, uh, it's really the topic at the dinner table right now. And, and I think we're not so much solving the problems as we are getting better at identifying the questions. 
And once we've gotten better at identifying the questions, so, you know, you're at a dinner party and somebody uh, has a family member who's maybe starting uh, uh, into early stages of dementia. Um, how do you respond to it? Where do they go? Because, you know, we, we've certainly experienced that. And, and, and there's, um, there's, a, there's a, an awareness that there is this sort of web of resources that might be there. Uh, where would, you know, if you were at that dinner party and somebody said, oh, you know, my mother's starting to, to microwave the jewelry and things like this, and, and, and right. just, just very sad things are starting to happen. Where do they begin, Laura? Is it the lawyer? Is it their accountant? Where, where are the resources they should be going to for, for starting points on this? I think the first starting point, if you can, is with the older person. And that may or may not be so easy. And so um, there's some delicacy in conversations that have to happen, but many older people you know, have awareness that they are starting to forget things or that they can't hear as well as they used to and that they're concerned about their relationships. So it's that first piece of understanding that older people are, you know, are people and they get to make bad life decisions because they're adults if they want. Uh, they can, you know, spend all their money in Vegas or they can choose to financially support a somewhat predatory child because they've decided in the cost benefit analysis that that's what they're going to do the the real extra challenge is understanding you know are they doing this of what equates to their own free will understanding the risks and benefits or is what we're seeing kind of undue influence which means you know does that person really have the ability to to make a decision or are they actually being abused or neglected or under the thumb of somebody that they can't or you know is that person starting to lose some form of mental capacity so the the microwaving the jewelry for me i always talk about you know calling the police at 3 a.m because someone's stealing the bananas i've had several of those types of cases and and it's important to have a good understanding that when you're talking about cognitive impairment you have to rule out everything before you start start thinking about dementia and that's a mistake that families make you know they think that because mom is microwaving the jewelry that it has to do necessarily with alzheimer's we talk about the four d's right we talk about delirium depression you know dementia and cognitive decline and you have to figure out you know is this person acting in a strange way because of an underlying health issue do they have a urinary or bladder infection which is causing delirium and you know that's not dementia that can be solved with sulfa drugs and some cranberry juice in a couple of good days right or are they acting in a peculiar confused way because they had a hip being replaced right like you've got to knock out those other things first and what we often do is just jump to the assumption it's dementia so identify what that issue is and where possible raise it with mom and dad and then go from there and um i, I think that's actually um a, a, a fabulous bit of advice because we we do jump to the wrong conclusions uh, uh, and I think that's partly fear that 
caregivers or potential caregivers um, are, are themselves have about the decline of their their parents uh, or their loved ones uh, that they see in front of them, which really raises the importance. And this isn't a state planning show. Um, it really raises the importance, I think, of the process associated with choosing who our substitute decision makers will be um, when that day comes so that they can go through that process with a certain level of compassion and empathy and mutual understanding. Uh, what, what would you suggest to people is a good starting point earlier than later, I imagine, but <laughs> where, where do people begin with that, Laura? I, you know, of course, this is my area of passion. So as soon as the young person reaches adulthood, so whatever the age of majority in your jurisdiction is for that, typically it's about 18, but in some things it could be 16 or 19, whatever the age of majority is, that's when to start talking about it. And, and we say like, start talking about it in the idea, not necessarily about dementia, because that's very frightening to people. But about if something goes bad, what if they're in a car accident? Or alternatively, what if they're having a wonderful time in Florida in February, but there's been a flood in their basement of their house in, in London, Ontario, and someone needs to deal with the insurance agent, right? Think about it in those sort of less frightening terms, because dementia is one of those things people will often really push back on unless they are actually thinking about it head on themselves. So start that conversation. I always say it's great to have that conversation, you know, talk about death and taxes kind of at the same time. So when you are doing your tax preparation, also weave in conversations about substitute decision-making. And then I always say, when I'm talking with people that I'm helping and supporting, I, I get kind of two pieces of paper out. This is a really practical way of doing it. Put two pieces of paper on the table and put, you know, a dollar sign on one, you know, and an RX sign on the other and say, okay, so let's talk about what are the decisions that you have to make that are financial and what are the decisions that you have to make that are health. Help them think through what those decisions are for them as part of the planning conversation. After they've had a chance to weigh out the types of conversations that they would have to have, okay, so for my financial, I'm going to have to think about things like paying bills. Oh, but I'm also going to have to think about things like investments. Oh, okay. I'm also going to have to think about things like filing taxes. I'm going to have to start, you walk through what those different types of things are in that bucket. And on the other piece of paper, you think about what are the decisions that you have to make for yourself around health and personal care? where I live, what I wear, my medications, which doctor I go to, you know, treatment decisions. People often just jump to end of life, but it's not that, it's about how you live. Then after you've demarcated and gone through with those people, what decisions that are in each bucket for them, then start talking about who they trust and who they think is best suited to make those kinds of decisions. So often we get people saying, oh, you know, I've got five kids. I, I don't want to make any decisions that don't include all of them. So can I appoint all of my five children equal substitute decision makers and, and make it like, you no, know, they all have to agree, uh, even though they don't usually agree on anything. But, you know, I know that in this great time of stress, somehow they'll all come together and agree. And then you can, as an advisor, take them through that and say, okay, you've got five kids. Let's talk about who lives close to you. Is there a detail-oriented person? 
Is there a person that faints at the site of a hospital, right? Walk them through the kinds of types of decisions that they had talked about themselves and then have them think through the people in their lives, and it may not even end up being their children, but a family friend or a trusted advisor in some other way, and, and ask about the attributes that they would want for each kind of person to be their decision maker. Usually you'll get down to a pretty short list pretty fast. It's, it's interesting that you describe it that way, because if I'm hearing you right, you're really saying that and this is, I don't think this is a Canadian thing. This is a Canadian based show. I don't think it's a Canadian thing. You know, in our family uh, of religion, politics and money were the sure, if you start talking about those, that was the surest way to get uninvited from a social <laughs> event, right? <laughs> and I don't think we're unusual that way. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is that in many ways, at least as it pertains to, to intentionality and finances the opposite is actually the better approach and you're talking about building relationships conversational relationships back and forth between um, uh, people that we're transferring our decision-making capacity to and ourselves uh, that is really what you're talking about is is making the estate planning and within that context powers of attorney for personal care and property much less of a transactional event than a process that people should have in their lives. Advanced planning is an ongoing process. And just to kind of build on that point, you, know, you are as an advisor or as just a person who's trying to help whether or not you're an actual paid advisor or whether you're just a person that cares and wants to support the conversation with a friend or family member. It's all about developing that relationship and helping the person who is still mentally capable of making these decisions, find out what they want. Because so many decisions, um, you have to decide whether or not you're gonna have the document be kind of a, a live ongoing document, like a credit card that you issue that somebody could be using right now for you, or is it like a credit card that you get where that 1-800 number has to be called in order to activate? And those kinds, we could talk about springing powers of attorney or triggered powers of attorney. They sleep until something happens. And typically it's a mental capacity assessment where then they spring into effect. Or are you the person who is going to go down to Florida and does want to make sure that your adult children are able to pay the bills or help the insurance agent or whatever needs to be done? And in that case, you want what's called a continuing power of attorney that's active right away and that they can, if they need to, give a hand to. I'll give you a small kind of fun idea on that. I, my husband had to renew his car parking permit, which I knew was going to be a huge and ongoing lineup and a real challenge, particularly in the time of COVID-19. And I said, can you renew my car parking permit while you're there at City Hall? And he said, well, I can't do that. You need to. And then I whipped out my handy continuing power of attorney and said, take this. You can do it. And he did. And he was astonished that it worked because he always thought of it as this thing that's an end of life or when there's a mental capacity assessment. But I chose the kind of continuing power of attorney that would let someone help me just on a regular basis. So part of this conversation, this relational conversation is to try to figure out what are the issues, who are the right people, and do you want something that's active right away or do you want something that sleeps and springs into effect? And then just to finally wrap up on that point, it's a process. So when people say to me, how often should you 
think about these things. I say, well, it's annual for sure. Again, death and taxes. But then I say, look, it's part of a process of life. Anytime that you would send a, a Hallmark card, a wedding, a funeral, a bar mitzvah, you know, a movement to a different part of the country, a retirement, any of those things that you would send a greeting card for should be a trigger to look at your advanced plan and have a conversation again. Well, we uh, certainly here in this area, the local fire department encourages us uh, when we change the uh, uh, change the uh, to, to to daylight savings time to take a look at our uh, batteries and our our smoke detectors and things like that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having reminders uh, at regular intervals to have us review all of our planning needs. Um, I think that's a, a great idea. That doesn't mean they have to be reaching out to their lawyer. A lot of people will be fearful that those kinds of things cost them money. You're really just promoting an engagement with their own, their own planning and the needs of their own planning. And so they're actually becoming informed about you know, what it is this document can do, how it affects them as they are changing over time and what changes a year has wrought. You're really just getting them engaged. Yeah, they need to think through it. People need to think through, as I say, at least annually. But kind of the greeting card test is, well, what if your power of attorney, the person, the attorney themselves that you've appointed, say it's your son, Larry, but you've written them a card because Larry has moved to you know, Bangladesh, which right. is fine. But then is he still going to be the right person to be your attorney? Probably not. Or is it that your best friend was your attorney for property and you've just written a card to your best friend's spouse because your best friend passed away, right? You have to think through these things on an ongoing basis. Or what if you're actually moving across the country, you know, and the people that you had chosen were your neighbors and friends and close by because it is generally better to have somebody who's closer to you than far away for practical purposes and you're moving six provinces over should you also be not just thinking about changing your mailing address but you should be thinking as well as am i still good for the right people am i still good for my needs on planning or do i need to check in and, and think about that so those timely reminders but whenever you have a life event to also think about this doesn't cost money really what it does is just keep you engaged in your thought process. And how far, you know, you're talking about building relationships. Um, how far out should some of that relationship building go? So, you know, you're looking at the Christmas card you're sending out or, or whatever uh, occasion card you're sending out. When should you be looking at what advisors you're working with. So, you know, I, over the years, I, I, a common theme I noticed was that somebody would come out of college or university, they'd get going in their careers and their lawyers and their accountants were often people that were similarly aged, people they knew in school who were retiring and aging at the same, you know, life intervals that they are. Um, how should uh, uh, people that are listening to this think about the, the network of people that they keep around them and updating and keeping that fresh. You know, one of the biggest things that can be a huge protective factor is to make sure that you've got relationships. And I mean, those personal and professional relationships across generations. 
And so, you know, if your doctor is 80 and you are 80, that may not serve you as well because your doctor may be retiring. So by thinking about, you know, professionals um, who are exactly the same age as you or the same cohort of you, you can often limit yourself. So it's always important to make sure that you've got personal and professional relationships across generations. So you may be thinking, particularly when it comes to who your financial advisor is, okay, it may be your friend Anne or your longtime financial uh, you know, advisor who you've known for you know, 20 years and that's fine, they're about the same age as you. But you know, it's also important to make sure that your financial advisor has some longevity in them as well, and maybe also some of their own planning processes. So if you have an advisor and they get into trouble, either for their own dementia or they get hit by a car or they simply retire happily, you know, is there somebody that will take over their business for them that they've been working with as well? So again, making sure you've got intergenerational resources is really important as you age as well. Well, and, and I would suspect that that creates, I mean, we live in an, a digital age and it's actually getting easier and easier to be cut off from a broader community because of the online ability to do so many things uh, day to day. And, and advisors in any capacity are often on the front line of noticing uh, manipulated behavior or uh, something that's a little unusual about how a client is uh, uh, is um, uh, engaging in their their day-to-day -day affairs that they didn't used to do um, that can help someone who say has been appointed a power of attorney for property or personal care uh, because they should probably have a relationship with that advisor as well so that you know within the the boundaries of professional professionalism, some information can be shared there. Uh, that's probably really important, distant early warning signs about things that are going on. Absolutely. We need to make sure that wherever possible, an older person, of course, is not being exploited. Or if there's something what we call mild cognitive impairment starting to show up, that we are able to identify any kind of changes in behavior. And just to take a second, mild cognitive impairment is usually starting to manifest 10 years before an actual diagnosis of dementia. And one of the first sets of impairment that manifests is higher financial and mathematical reasoning. So they may still understand and appreciate routine financial decisions or routine healthcare decisions. But when it comes to sort of abstract understanding about investments, that, that's technically the most likely to go first. It's very helpful for advisors to have family relationships, but always keep crisp and clear who the client is. So if I am the client, then my relationship is to them and they have a duty of care, uh, which may also be a fiduciary duty. It depends on what your actual uh, line of business is. And so if my son who I have appointed to be my attorney for finance and property matters is with me, I certainly would like my son to become accustomed to knowing who my financial advisor is or knowing who my legal advisor is and i want those relationships to be established but always understanding that the relationship is mine 
The other piece that many people forget is that you can get consent to share information. So many professionals will be very concerned about rightly violating privacy and the confidential relationship. But they often forget that you can ask their client if information should be or would they like information shared to other people, commonly the attorney, but not always. And by that it consent, you of course avoid those problems. And that can be very helpful if you're the kind of advisor that sits down with families across generations and has family planning meetings. You should also make sure that you're checking in on that on a regular basis if you're an advisor because if you are going to share information they may say in the abstract oh yes yes you can share whatever information you want with my son but they may not have thought through that each instance or things may change so consider if you're going to be the kind of advisor that sits down with a whole family or shares information to an attorney best practice in my view is to check in with your client each time before you share personal information with somebody else and confirm that it's still the case. Uh, I really like the idea of the family planning meetings because what you're doing there, you're doing a number of different things there. Uh, one, you're getting that those relationships built during those meetings and you're promoting the health around that. You're also getting people, in particular the, the aging client in question, more um, accustomed to some distributed uh, decision-making over the period of time. So they're starting to share because one of the things that, and this is purely anecdotal, I've, I've noticed that as people get older, they tend to be very fearful that anytime a question of money comes up, uh, that people are taking from them. And, and that, is that maybe one of the signs that this onset, this 10 year window is starting to, has started for somebody is a, a, a general, not so much inability, but a, 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 just a desire not to talk about money ever. Like how do people spot we that? We know that some of, yeah, we know that some of the red flags would include sort of paranoid thinking about, you know, being taken advantage of, you know, being exploited, people are after my money, so on and so forth. Having said that, you know, <laughs> the challenge is, of course, elder abuse is quite prevalent and about two-thirds of all elder abuse and neglect broadly is perpetrated by those closest to you and so just because they're saying that you know they are being exploited or or someone is taking their money and they're fearful that may actually be the case too so it's hard sure. to use that as a differentiating factor what i will say is it's certainly a red flag for further investigation whether that investigation is into mental capacity or elder abuse or in some cases both um, people who have radical changes in behavior though and and often becoming very secretive or evasive that is a red flag for both mental capacity as well as possibilities for elder abuse and neglect. So you're going to have to do a deeper dive and try to figure out what's really going on there. So if somebody does suspect that a uh, someone they care for, someone they're close to, uh, a family member is uh, being manipulated, maybe being financially abused, what, what should they do? 
So it does depend on the circumstance. There's no sure. one easy answer. If you're concerned that, say, your dad is now acting strangely, uh, you're concerned and you are the attorney, uh, and if you're the attorney and you're under a continuing power of attorney, which is active right away, I mean, part of what you're going to need to do is better understand if, if you should be taking on additional responsibilities and kind of leaning in. If you're the attorney and you have a triggering or a springing, a springing kind of attorney, um, then you may need to start getting a mental capacity assessment to see whether or not you know, that person has lost their ability to understand and appreciate, and you should be taking over those decisions. So you've got a responsibility to do that too. But there's a practical step. So the first practical step is get a physical. <laughs> because yeah. so often what we worry about that's mental is actually physical. And so you really need to eliminate every other physical cause what could be medication error it could be high blood pressure it could be low blood sugar or onset of diabetes it could be that they have some type of a genetic disability or there could be a tumor growing it really could be that they've got you know you know not enough cooling in their house and they're overheated and so we often rush straight to this idea that it's a mental capacity issue. And very often it could be a transitional physical, physical issue. So go to get a physical. And then after you get a physical, if you're still concerned about mental capacity, then you're going to have to start walking into the waters about getting mental capacity assessments. And that's its own special joy. I, I really like that you start by, by, because I think people do jump to into the deeper end of the water there and 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 they start with the physical, as you mentioned, it could be something solved with a minor uh, you know a minor pill and and some cranberry juice uh, uh, and 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 you know we joke about that a little bit, but it's actually true and and have encountered that. I would imagine for somebody who is the power of attorney for personal care, um, having a a willingness and an ability, as you say, to lean in and have a relationship with the person's family doctor is probably another important uh, uh, source of intel. You have to have that ability, that capacity, and that willingness to set up those meetings, attend those meetings, and, and uh, be prepared to deal with what comes out of those meetings. Exactly so. Um, you know, and, and I mean, people do push off getting healthcare checkups. And, you know, I think that a lot of people don't want to get things checked because they're worried about what the answer is going to be. I think that's really normal. You know, you've got a bump. You don't want to know if is that bump cancer or is it benign so you don't go get it checked. Well, it's even, you know, the case with mental capacity, except it's slightly more complex. You may or may not have awareness that you are forgetting things you might and you might be able to then say i think i should go get my mental capacity assessment but mostly what happens is you lose some uh you lose some awareness and you're combining what you have left with worry and so often it, you're not going to be the one who is actually going to take the steps to go and say, I need myself a mental capacity assessment. It's very often an advisor, a trusted family member, 
or a close friend that's starting to say, you know, I, I think we need to do something. And it's very delicate to tell somebody that you think that they're losing mental capacity. It often doesn't go well. Whereas a health issue is a much easier way to uh, to start right. the conversation. Yeah, yeah. You're seeing, um, a theme, you're seeing a theme in this, right? Let, let's start with making sure that other things are checked off first. And then let's start with, you know, getting you as an individual bought into your own advanced planning or your current well-being and only after all of those things are done and you've got kind of increasing awareness then that supporter can come in in a less combative way usually and that is the theme i mean you've talked about family meetings you've talked about relationships this is a process this is not uh, you know a lot of people find out they're the power of attorney um when some event happens they they actually didn't necessarily have those those complex conversations of what the role would actually mean and what they might be asked to do and what they needed to commit to um that requires conversations that requires engagement that's different that's not the usual process or, or it's not the process i've experienced over the years what's changed you know in this COVID era as we as we are recording this show that we're sort of at the end of the beginning i hope of the the, the global pandemic but um I, I think this is far from over i think it's yeah, farid zakaria did a show on his uh, gps show where he talked about this this experience this pandemic experience it's not it's causing some changes but it's accelerating changes that were already starting to happen in this space laura um what are some of the changes you've seen that have been accelerated what's sort of the new reality for people dealing with uh, uh dealing with uh, uh their elder parents or and that might be long-term care facilities it might be the decisions they make around that what are some things that have come out of this horrible time well the first instinct i had when the announcement from dr tam who's the chief medical officer of canada and is responsible for the kind of national response when she said that all people 70 and over should self-isolate in their own homes my first thought was, well, let's see how that goes over with the very young 70-year-old baby boomers who are out themselves usually taking care of their aging parents or perhaps in their 90s, and at the same time raising their you know, grandchildren while playing golf or, or maybe working at home or working in the workforce. Um, because people at that age typically didn't necessarily self-identify as being older, let alone vulnerable. It was a real wake-up call for many people and i have to say that my experience has been you know people then started calling their advisors and started to actually have a big push on creating powers of attorney and wills and other you know financial planning uh, systems so there was a, in my view a big push when they had this kind of carry and wake up call that oh my goodness if you get this your chances of of recovering are significantly lower. The other piece I think people started thinking about was, okay, you know what? I really don't want to go into a nursing home, a long-term care facility. I am going to call up my advisor and ask them 
what do I need to do to ensure that I can age in place at home? And so a lot of financial advisors started talking about home modifications and how to save uh, enough money for a different kind of life. So they may have you know, not been thinking about what things cost in retirement homes or long-term care facilities, but are now turning their minds to it and are more willing to invest in the in the home for things like lifts or ramps or home modifications or widened doors. And so we saw a wake up call and a kind of a rush to create their own investments so that they don't end up in a place where they would feel unsafe. And certainly in the Canadian context during the time of COVID-19, about 82% of all deaths from COVID happened in congregate care facilities like nursing homes. So there's a big scare and a big shock. And I think that that has, that has changed the conversation with advisors, whether they be legal advisors or financial advisors or insurance advisors. So do you see, uh, as we move forward with this, it, uh, that conversation now is going to be more about reorienting the funds towards staying in your home or in a single room facility. There, there's actually going to be uh, new opportunities for, for great conversations created out of this, this crisis because I think there's going to be a demand for other professionals and other resources that didn't, uh, uh, didn't exist before. And building those connections will be important. I think it's a big opportunity. And, you know, I, I say that, you know, if COVID has taught us anything, it's how tenuous our own plans actually are, right? So yeah. it may be that you thought that you would do these things, but now you had a little bit of a reality check saying, not only am I vulnerable, but I need to take positive steps forward. It often also has been serving as a destigmatizing opportunity for advisors to check in with clients and to prompt them to make some future decisions that they may have been putting off or didn't want to confront. And because it's this universal experience, we've all been in some form of self-isolation. It also leads us into conversations not just about financial planning or home adaptation or insurance, and I think all of those things are real, but also around social networks and loneliness and, and what we need to be thinking about in terms of our lifestyle. So it may be that we thought, oh, you know what, I'm going to sell my house in the city and I'm going to move to the cottage in this beautiful rural community. And, and COVID may show that that's a great idea, but it may also come to bear the fact that, you know, there are very few actual opportunities to, um, to get social engagement there as well. So it's starting to open up some of our frailties in our thinking. And, and that need for social networking, I mean, that again comes back to the relationships. Um, there, there seems to be this push and this pull between our move to automation. I mean, we're doing this interview via Zoom and that's fantastic, but, and you're in one part of the country and I'm in the other, but um, 
there are practical realities about uh, uh, about aging and uh, the people that we use as our substitute decision makers, where physical proximity and an ability to tap into those networks can't just go away. Like you can't you can't uh, get the same level. I think, anyways, and correct me if I'm wrong. Like I think you've got to have that physical in place uh, relationship, and that's probably something that people have to be cognizant of if they're going to step into the role as a power of attorney for property or personal care. That's something they're going to have to tap into. I think it's really important to embrace the innovations, but also understand its limitations. And so if people ask me, you know, in my opinion, if I had to have somebody who was at a distance versus have somebody who was close by, which of those is better? And I would say, you know, financial can be more easily done these days at a distance using technology, but the personal care stuff, I, where possible, you know, being close by and being able to see those changes and the needs and, and so on is perhaps more important. I do think we're going to continue to have innovation and connections and in, in things like Skype and Zoom and others. And I think that we'll have more sensors if people are consenting to having that, even your your specialized watch, if you have a, an iWatch or some other type of Android watch, you know, with the consent of the person can monitor health status and movement status and so on. So I do think that there's a great role to play there, but in the end, nothing beats the ability to lay eyes and lay hands on the person that you're supporting. So, this planning, I mean, has has the planning community caught up with where we actually are? Uh, so if someone if someone is uh, looking for a lawyer who can help them with their elderly parent, say, and they want to they want to coordinate some family planning, they've done the the relationship building, they've done the family meetings, they they, they want to start doing this. What should they look for in their advisors? Is there are there designations they can look for? Is there experience in terms of choosing an advisor or or working with an advisor? What are some things? And this is probably work that CanAge does is helping people. Uh, be in, make informed choices about choosing advisors and choosing uh, uh, products and services? So uh, I'm a fan of the TEP, the Trust and Estates Practitioner. And, and if you look and see a TEP after somebody's name, then you know that they're part of what's known as the Society for Trust and Estates Practitioners. And so I often say, you know, because that is a very rigorous standard and it is across this country and globally, if you do have a TEP after your name, you're probably in good stead. If you were in the United States, you would look at NALA, which is the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, and they have um, they have also the ability to get specialized training. In in Canada, there's a number of different types of certifications as well. I'm a bit more cautious about some of those sort of certified aiding professionals. Some of them are better than others. You'd have to kind of have a look. I feel very uncomfortable if you've you know, got a 
somebody with a lot of letters after their name. And if you Google those letters, you see that they took a you know one hour webinar. Those things are, are quite concerning. If you're a lawyer, you can specialize in certain jurisdictions like Ontario. So if you're a specialist in estates, uh, you can be certain that that is also going to mean that they've got a very high degree of, of uh, expertise in that area. If you're in the insurance or financial sector, you know, there are some other forms of it, but I also like as a bit of a back end to that, I always go into their LinkedIn profiles or their work profiles on their website and see, are they people who are regularly the providers of continuing education in that area? I want the person that teaches and advises other professionals because I know then that they considered themselves really quite experts and their peers have acknowledged them. So if you are in, like in law, if you look and they are providing um, as faculty education opportunities for the Canadian Bar Association or the Ontario Bar Association, and that's true if you're a financial planner, you might be at FP Canada, Financial Planning Canada, or you're another type of designation, and you are the person that is teaching others, and that's usually listed on the website, I feel pretty darn confident that you're somebody that I can trust. Well, and you are identifying two things there. One, that there's a fair bit of effort that needs to go into this. Like this, this choosing who we work with, particularly when we're working with uh, someone who's in a particular community, the elder community, um, that's a specialty, which is the second thing. There's an expertise that goes with that. And so you're highlighting that, um, you know, possibly 30, 40 years ago, people didn't Put that kind of effort into those choices but today they have to i think they they have to what what's some of the work you're doing now with can age laura you're bringing probably a, a lot of this information to canadians um what 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 kind of work are you doing this is sort of a new venture for you a new and exciting venture uh and congratulations on it by the way um what 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 can people uh uh, and we'll direct them on the show notes for this uh, show to your webpage. What kind of work are you doing for uh, for Canadians? So Canada is Canada's national seniors advocacy organization. So we bring the voice of seniors to the key issues that matter the most. So, you know, recently, of course, with COVID, we've been talking about long-term care. We've been raising awareness about the importance of family caregivers. We've been working with government to try to reform long-term care, but always bringing that voice of Canadian seniors. If it comes to things like estate planning or financial planning, we are often those people that are teaching at those courses that we talked about, making sure that we're helping people both in their professional practice practices, but also making sure that they understand both the content and the nuance of how to act in a professional relationship or what are the most innovative practices to make sure that your work is elder friendly. We, in 2021, will be doing certifications of best practices for companies and organizations to have our kind of seal of approval that they've lived up to the highest standards. We work closely in the financial sector with organizations like the Ontario Securities Commission, with IFIC, with organizations like uh, IROC and the MFDA. If those acronyms are familiar to you, then that's then you know what I'm talking about. If they're not familiar to you, don't worry too much. It just means that they are the investment regulators. 
And we try to make sure that where vulnerable investors are at play, that the advisors and the regulators have the best protocols in place to identify elder abuse and neglect. But people can also just become involved as members. And we have a lot of information on our website and we create all kinds of different content and newsletters to make sure that people are as up to scruff as they possibly can be in working with older people and always making again sure that Canada is a place that we want to age and Canada is a place that we can age very very well. Um, and I think that what I'm hearing from you is that there's a lot of information there for people who are on the other side of the table who are advising both uh, elder elder clients as well as the family and, and decision makers associated with elder clients. But one way to look at that, but also for those people, there's information for them as well. One way to look at that, and, and I always try to get people to remember this, your suggestion, you know, going to websites and researching, you can turn that information around. You know, that becomes empowering for you. If, if, if you see somebody who is being advised, you know, a, uh, an advisor is being encouraged to consider these practice directions. As a decision maker for an older person, you can, you can take that and say, that's a, uh, intel for you. You can turn that question around when you're questioning an advisor and say, what steps have you taken such as? Uh, this becomes a way for you to create a checklist uh, of, of people that you're working with to make sure that they are up on issues associated with uh, uh, with aging in Canada in the 20 in, in 2020. Um, okay, you talked and, and, and I think we'll conclude on this because I know you've got a busy schedule. You talked about the dinner party and how dinner parties have transitioned over the years. Um, you're at a dinner party, somebody hears you talking about your specialty interest in, in aging in Canada and they say, geez, Laura, you know, my, my, my parents just appointed me a power of attorney for personal care and maybe my sibling as well as power of attorney for property, whatever the combination is, I don't know where to begin. I don't know, you know, I said yes, because they're my parents. Um, what do you say to them? Where do they begin? I do they just wait until, or do they, is there something they can get started on? <laughs> yeah, they should probably get started on a good stiff drink is what they should probably get started on because it's the beginning of a, a long relationship with a lot more obligations than you probably think are there. Um, I found out 20 years later that I had been appointed as an attorney, a joint attorney with my brother, um, I found that out when I was 39 and I had been appointed when I was 19, but there's no actual requirement in the current law in Ontario, and hopefully this will change, to advise somebody that you've been appointed as an attorney. So my first piece of advice is get a copy of the document, find out what kind of obligations you've been signing up for, and then remember that you can say no. <laughs> in theory, you may not feel like you can actually say no, but start from a position of understanding what the responsibilities and expectations are. And many people, again, will think that this is just kind of an end of life thing. Well, no, if a person's in a car accident and they're 30 and they may have special needs for years, you may be taking care of them for decision making for the next 50 years. So understand that this is actually a longer term obligation that you're signing up for. Find out about, you know, things being covered so you can you can 
charge a little bit of money. It depends on which jurisdiction you're in, but in Ontario, there's a very minimal amount of money. And, you know, have a conversation about whether or not you would be expected to take that or not. I actually encourage people to take it because even if you have childcare costs that you have to cover in order to do this, then at least there's a little bit of something there. But make sure the expectation is clear about whether or not you would take that little, little bit of money. Um, to offset your time and effort and, and what, these, what the family expectation of that is. Then the next thing is start having conversations and that may be hard. So we've got some tools on our website that can help to guide conversations and you can have other tools as well. Um, the NICE Network, the National Initiative for Care of the Elderly, nicenet.ca has more than 200 evidence-based tools free for download in both English and French and some in other jurisdictions which can help you guide through all kinds of conversations and, and learn about what your obligations are. There's one specific to being a power of attorney, but there's others about what you would also be looking for in terms of red flags and, and decision-making. Start if you can, and families are different, start insisting you sit down once a year. Again, I always think of it, you know, tax season. Sit down with whoever you're supposed to be making decision for. Open up the documents. Open up, you know, if they will share financial information, open up the financial information. Try to have a conversation that's based on what ifs. So what if you were to fall and hit your head? And, and what if, you know, and try to get rid of those ice flow conversations where my mother told me the other day that, you know, she wasn't interested in aging anymore. She was just gonna ask to be put on an ice flow. And I said, well, do you have any idea how hard it is to find an ice flow these days in the time of global warming? Maybe we should actually sit down and talk about your values and your wishes and beliefs and your religious desires and your obligations and your concerns. And like, maybe we should talk about that because I, I'm not going to Fogo Island and trying to find out how to haul you on an ice flow. So there's like, Humor is, is a good and useful tool in this, but really, if you're signing up to be a power of attorney, get them to, if you can, agree to have frank conversations with you at least once a year so you can keep on top of their changing needs and their, what their wishes are. I really like that you use the what if, uh, and, and that, I think that was accidental, but that's really what, you know, we start off each show each uh, week with a what if question. And, and I think those are questions that have to be asked. We have to consider the, the, the black swan events. You know, COVID isn't, it's kind of a black swan event because as you mentioned, it happened everywhere to everybody at once and everybody is, is at risk to it. But if we dial back the analysis of the, of the risk management a little bit, it's really what happens if I can't get out of my home because of an illness or an injury? Uh, or what if my community were flooded, for example? It doesn't have to be a pandemic. It could be a natural, another type of natural disaster, which happens in Canada. We have those things all the time. Um, ice storms, I can remember. So you're, you're pointing out really important conversations that people don't have enough of. We, and, and using those normalizing, non-frightening events. Hey, remember back in, you know, 97 with that ice storm in Montreal? And, you know, you live on the ocean right now, or you live on a lake, or you live in a rural community, or you live right downtown in Toronto. You know, let's talk about, you know, ever had the power go out? Okay, what would you do if, and who would you look to, and how would you manage? And, and okay, if you couldn't do that, would you want me to do that for you? 
right? And, right. and who should I talk to about that, right? Start at the things that are not terrifying and, and things that people have actually experienced. You can spend some time reminiscing about that and then go from there. Or alternatively, you know, talk about a common experience about somebody who's fallen and broken a hip. Everybody knows somebody who's fallen and broken a hip and, and you know or, or maybe they've you know hurt their foot and they had a mobility problem and then that can help you get in about well you know I worry about your back deck a little bit you know maybe we should talk about railings and you know everyone should get that and I should get that in my own house no matter even for my young kids and then parlay that kind of normalized conversation into Okay. And who do you use for that? And who are your advisors? And maybe I should just write those down so I have them. Oh, okay. Do you want to tell your advisors like my name? So do they have that information? Okay. And then, you know, does everyone have a copy of those documents? I'm not sure if I have a hard copy of those documents. Maybe should I, can I get a copy of those just so if anything happens, I do that. And I know the name of your doc, right? You can see how you can get forward in a conversation. I always suggest that you get an address book, like a physical address book, but if you know, electronic is fine too. And you go through that address book that you have of all of their contact information. They even sell some now that you can have that are specifically about planning that look like scrapbooks and, and put in all of those different information and don't forget digital passwords. Obviously don't avoid or violate your agreement for passwords with your organization, but so much of the stuff gets put on the computer and then your substitute decision maker has no idea how to get into your passwords. And if that person has lost capacity, then it's, it's a disaster. So get the information about the people and then also try to figure out to make sure that you've got some type of authority to access passwords or digital sites in an appropriate fashion well and a lot of people don't think about that my mother uh she she passed away at 77 very unexpectedly and uh she was a uh, she was on facebook all the time she absolutely loved it and um the, the age we live in, we shouldn't assume anymore that older members of our family don't have a digital footprint. Uh, they do. And it's something we might want to memorialize. And there are abilities to do that with certain social media, uh, uh, certain social media sites. Laura, you've been absolutely fantastic. I want to thank you for sharing all the wisdom that you have. I think I, I knew you would, would uh, give us so much information. We probably should have booked two hours and maybe we'll do another one in the future, but I, I think some, I would love to do that. Thank I would love you. to have you here. It's been an honor. Thank you for sharing all of your, your ideas and good luck with CanAge. And I think it's going to be a great success. Tamlin Watts for being my special guest this week on the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. Laura's personal contact information, including for CanAge, is available on the show notes for this week's show from your podcast provider. Next week, I'm very happy to have a two-part podcast featuring Steve Legler out of Montreal, Quebec. Steve is a family enterprise advisor and an author of several books on family business. He will be discussing issues related to conflict and dynamics in a family business. Please join us next week on the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast.